Welcome to Hook, Line, and Splitter, a Jersey Shore Blue Claws podcast. Hook, Line, and Splitter is presented by NJR Home Services. And now, here's your host, Greg Giambarisi. Welcome back to Hook, Line, and Splitter, a Jersey Shore Blue Claws podcast presented by NJR Home Services. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Greg Giambarisi's very special guest today on episode 9 of Hook, Line, and Splitter, a Jersey Shore Blue Claws podcast. And that is Larry Schenk, longtime Phillies PR man, began with the team in 1964, worked as the main PR Contact through 2008 was with the team several years after that. Vice President of Alumni Relations, just a, a great man and a, and a beacon of Philly's knowledge and stories. And we dive into a bunch of them uh, here today in Hook, Line, and Splitter. Jersey Shore Blue Claws podcast presented by NJR Home Services, your energy savings MVP. So you can spend your money where you really want to at the ballpark. Visit NJRHomeservices.com. So the Blue Claws will be back home, but not for a while, not till June 29th, and then they'll play 13 games in 13 days, including a doubleheader uh, against Wilmington, seven games in those six days. We'll come back and talk about that on the other side. But uh, first, we'll, we'll start with Larry Shank, who, as we said, has been uh, a member of the Phillies family for almost 60 years now, and uh, he joined us from his home uh, earlier this week. We talked about everything from his start in 1964, how he got the nickname of the Baron, and much more. So, you know, Mike Schmidt, Steve Carlton, the, the 70s Phillies as they built up towards their first championship in 1988, uh, 1980. And then, you know, the 93 team, we spent a lot of time on that team, Mickey Morandini, Darren Dalton, and much more. And then, you know, the, the Ryan Howard, Jimmy Rollins, Chase Utley Phillies with Charlie Manuel, uh, obviously that won the World Series in 2008. Um, talked about... Old Spring Trainings at Jack Russell Stadium, the vet moving into the new park, and, and, a, and a ton of stuff. So you'll, you'll really like it, I think, and uh, we thank Larry for a few minutes uh, as well, of course. He, he was just fantastic, and uh, it was so great to have him on uh, on our show here today. So this is Episode 9 of Hook, Line, and Splitter, a Jersey Shore Blue Claws podcast presented by NJR Home Services, your energy savings MVP, so you can spend your money where you really want to at the ballpark. NJRHomeServices.com, Episode 9, with Larry Shank. Our guest today is Larry Shank, longtime Phillies PR maven and retired uh, Vice President of Alumni Relations with the Phillies. He joins us today. We're grateful to have him. Larry, welcome. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing fine. How about you? Doing, uh, doing just fine. How did, you, uh, how did you get through the summer uh, last year with no baseball until late July? It was very difficult because it's been a part of my life for so long, everybody's life, you know, but we were in a situation that was really different. So it was glad, I was glad when baseball did come back and I'm really glad this year that the Meyer leagues are back and everything because, you know, kids have dreams of playing in the big leagues and they couldn't play at all last year. Yeah. And you know that better than I do from living with them, you know, in, in Lakewood and it's just, it's so great to have it back. I think it's good for the country, and hopefully um, we're over the hump. Did you grow up thinking that someday you wanted to play baseball, work in baseball? How, how did you end up with the Phillies? Uh, I uh, couldn't play baseball. I tried, but I wasn't very good. You know the five tools that you have? I had yeah. zero. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Uh, my dream was to be a broadcaster in baseball, but that wasn't going to happen, I guess. So I graduated from college with an elementary 
degree in education, um, but I went to work at a local newspaper and did some sports and did everything else. And then I wound up in Wilmington, Delaware, um, as a uh, in the sports department covering high school sports in Delaware. And three years in a row, the Phillies PR job opened up. I applied in 61, 62, and 63. 63, I was in Wilmington and I had an interview. I was at the right place at the right time. They offered me the job and the rest is history. So I guess the answer is probably everything, but how, how was it? How was your job a lot different at the beginning back then compared to, you know, when you finally retired? We didn't have podcasts back then. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was totally different because the print was the, the big thing back in, in the days when I started, my first year was 64. We had five newspapers that covered us home and away. Um, all the games were not on TV at the time. They were on the radio. And over the course of time, it changed. Um, and the way you communicated with the media changed. Initially, it was all phone calls. And then you wanted press conferences. And now you can send out a tweet or an email within seconds and reach hundreds of people at one time. So it's much more easy that way, but in a way it's not because you have social media, which can be a plus and can be a minus. Oh, for sure. For sure. So let's start. Uh, 1964 was obviously a tough, it was a good season and then a tough finish uh, for the Phillies. So you really jumped right in, uh, jumped right in there with both feet with one of what unfortunately became one of the more historic uh, Phillies yep. teams ever. Yep. It was, uh, it was, I was a fan and we're in first place, you know, now we're planning for a world series. I had no idea what we're doing. Um, and I was, uh, you know, I got chewed out by the uh, treasurer one time attending a meeting. I wasn't making, taking enough notes what we had to do because we had to accommodate the media for the world series. I think it was CBS TV at the time. And of course, Connie McStadden was very antiquated. Uh, we didn't have the great facilities. Um, I guess the, one of my favorite stories from that year is, we needed the ballroom at the Warwick Hotel for a World Series party the night before the first game. And I went with a couple of other executives, uh, the Phillies. We went down and met with the general manager. He says, well, the, the ballroom is booked for a wedding that night and we can't do that. So my boss, Frank Powell, said, where is the owner? He said, the owner is in, is in, um, in France on vacation. He says, get him on the phone. So they got him on the phone and explained everything. and. Uh, they bounced the wedding out of the, of the hotel and we never made the World Series. So I don't know whether the wedding took place or didn't. We had a, a six and a half game lead with 10 games to go and or 12 games to go and everything went wrong for 10 games and we lost the pennant. We lost the world's chance to go to the World Series. We had printed the World Series tickets. We had distributed them, um, but it didn't work out that way. So, so you get to spring training and 65, was there kind of like a hangover from 64? There was a little bit. Um, Gene Mock was our manager. He liked veteran players. So we made some deals, picked up Ray Herbert, I think, from the one of the American League teams to add to the rotation. And things didn't go well again. Uh, Gene got blamed. Gene Mock got blamed a lot for the collapse in, in 64. But he, he wasn't his managing. We wouldn't have been in first place, in my opinion. We only had two healthy pitchers at the time, Jim Bunning and Chris Short, and he thought he could pitch them more frequently, steal a win, and that would be the end of it. And it didn't work out that way. We 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 had a game against the Braves where Rico Cardi hit a bases loaded triple, uh, hit the chalk line in right field. 
Cunningham Stadium and we lost the game. If it's foul, we win the game. It's a different story. Um, but the we went to Cincinnati at the time for the last two games of the season. We beat them and knocked them out of first place, and St. Louis took over. And if St. Louis lost to the Mets on Sunday and we won, there would be a three-way tie with the playoffs starting the next day at Cunningham Stadium. We won, and the Mets were ahead of the Cardinals, and the Mets were pretty pathetic in those days, and the Cardinals overcame them. They went to the World Series. How were you guys following the Cardinals game? Um, you couldn't pop the TV on in the in the press box on MLB TV. <laughs> you it wasn't there wasn't such a thing. I think we were listening to it on the radio. You know, it was, it was a lot different in in the old days. Then in the mid to late seventies, the Phillies you know built it back up, and then they finally broke through and won that that first World Series in nineteen eighty. But they had made three straight uh, LCSs right in 76, 77, and seventy eight. Yeah, yeah. What do you remember about those teams? They were good teams. The 1976 team had something that we'll never see again, I don't think, Greg. We used 11 total pitchers the whole season. 11. The Blue Claws are carrying 18 as we speak. Yeah, and um, sometimes nine pitchers pitch in the game these days. It was totally different back in those days, obviously. Um, it was a, the nucleus of the team was really good. Schmidt, Boa, you know, um, Luzinski, Maddox. Great defense, uh, Manny Trio that came along. And then the big thing we did was signing Pete Rose as a free agent. And, and then we had a lot of injuries in 79. We didn't make it, but in 80, we won everything. And if we didn't, didn't have Pete Rose, I don't think we'd have made it to the world, won the World Series. He was so instrumental in, on the team, a spark plug, a booster in the clubhouse with the players. You know, and he said that if we win the playoffs, the World Series will be a piece of cake. And of course, we had five games with Houston that were really gut-wrenching, extra inning games. And we did win that. And the World Series was like a piece of cake after that, that series with Houston. When Pete Rose broke the hit record, there was a funny story, right? With, with President Reagan, he was on the phone. Yes, we, uh, Pete, Pete knew everything. He was amazing. He knew who was pitching for the other team, who was hot, who was cold, and so forth. And uh, we, we arranged for a press conference uh, after the game because uh, we had a lot of media at the Veterans Stadium. We had a big room behind home plate, which once was a TV studio. And he and I are walking down there. He says, I guess you got the president calling me, don't you? <laughs> he knew. He knew. So we had a red phone sitting on the podium. And um, the White House called and said, just a minute, Mr. Rose. This went on for like five or six times. And Pete finally said, I'll give him my cell phone if he needs it, you know. Um, and we finally got a, he, President Reagan got on the phone and says, good evening, Mr. Rose, how are you doing? And he said, I'm okay, how are you? It was, it was really a comical thing. It was a, it was a, great, a great thing. Um, he, he deserved it. We had Stan Musial in town for, for a week waiting to break the record so we could have him come out for a space. And uh, it was it was a neat neat experience, a great moment in Veterans Stadium history. Um, then in '81, we were going to win again. I think I don't think there's any doubt about it. We were really good. We had the players strike. 55 games were lost. We were the first half champions. Then they came with all the second half team champions. We didn't win the second half. We lost to the Expos in the playoffs, and that kind of was the, the downturn for that 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 club at that time. 
In 83, we got in the World Series again, but it was an older team and uh, it only lasted one year. And then built it back up. We'll get to that. Um, Dallas Green, what do you remember about when he uh, took over as manager in 79? He, he came in and um, Danny Ozark was a player's manager and he kind of let them make the, run the clubhouse and so forth. Dallas came in and he was very stern. We, not I, was his theme. He had signs in the clubhouse. And he would play rookies over, he'd bench Maddox or Lazinski and play a rookie. And there was a lot of turmoil in the clubhouse. And uh, he, he, he was very tough, very loud, um, very restrictive. But in the end, it paid off. 11-29, October 21, 1980, we won the first World Championship. And we won another one in 2008. But the first one was a special one because it was the first one. Sure. It was a great experience. The parade was awesome, unbelievable. I was privileged to be around in 2008, even though I wasn't a full-time employee anymore. And we had the parade then. It was a great parade too. But again, that first one was very special. You know, we grew up with those guys, Boa and Larry Christensen, Carlton. They, they were there five, six years. And they were about my age. So it was, no, they, they were younger than I was. Pete, Chris Wheeler was my assistant. They were his age. And uh, they were a special group of players. And uh, for years, the Wiz kids were remembered by everybody. And then that time passed on and it became the, the 1980 team. And now that's passing on. And soon it'll be the, everybody remember the 2008 team. What did that mean for the, for the city? Like, could you tell the, the excitement for the whole city because it was the first one? You know, everybody talks about the, Red Sox drought, but they had won a couple. They hadn't won from 1918 until right, right. 2004. But the, for the Phillies, that was their first one. That's it was it was really unique. The parade, you could not believe the smiling faces you saw in the parade. Broad Street was packed. There were people uh, on rooftops. There were people leaving, leaning out of windows. Some people climbed the the um, traffic light poles. There were people in trees. You know, kids on the shoulders of their parents. And everybody was just smiling. It was just, it was a love fest. It really was. And Broad Street was packed all the way down to, to the, the to Veterans Stadium. Then we went over to the JFK Stadium. And there were 100,000 fans packed in there. It was just incredible, the, the, the experience that we went through. Uh, and it, it will never be matched because it was the first one. I know the Flyers won it in the, in, in the earlier than we did. But the impact that we had in 80 was just so huge. Um, it, it helped the city. You know, we were the champions. Philadelphia were, was the city of champions. Do you remember when they traded Brian Sandberg, which would have been in 82, was, right. was he, was he, he turned into a Hall of Famer, of course. Was he considered like a big time up and coming prospect at that time? What do you remember about that trade? He was a, a very good, talented athlete, was a quarterback in high school. We drafted him um, as a shortstop. Uh, there was difference of opinion. Dallas Green thought he was an in, uh, second baseman or a third baseman. Paul Owens thought he was a center fielder. Um, he wasn't the key guy in that deal. Dallas Green wanted Boa in, in Chicago for his makeup and drive and desire and feistiness. And he, he was, Sandberg was included in the deal. Um, he didn't do well at the beginning. Uh, he, he moved to third base early with the Cubs, and then Dallas moved him to second base, and 
he really took off. It was a tremendous player. Um, and he came back to manage this later on, but then that didn't work out. But um, he was a great athlete. So the Phillies um, obviously built everything um, back up late 90 or early 90s. And then 93, they have the special season winning 97 games, obviously lost the World Series to to the Blue Jays. Uh, I had interviewed Mickey Morandini, who played here. And yep. uh, I mean, who managed, sorry, he managed here in 2012 and 2013. And I interviewed him a couple of months ago and, and we were talking about that. And he's, he's, I said, when did you think that team would be, had a chance to be pretty special? Because in 92, they only won 70 games. And he said, there was like a, there was an incident in spring training involving Tommy Green and the pirates. So he got, he plunked a guy and, um, and every, and Mickey thought, Hey, everybody kind of came together really well. What do you remember most about the beginning of 93 and when you thought that that team had a chance to be special? Well, uh, Becky's exactly right. Uh, we did have a fight in spring training, which doesn't happen, but it united yeah. the team. And uh, we had a bunch of tough people with the best leader I've ever been around, da Darren Dalton. Dave Hollins was a tough, tough person. Um, and Cavillia was, it was a, a Danny Dykstra just grinded, grinded out things. We started the season off very well. I think we won our first three games. We went to Houston, won all three games there. And you could just feel it. Jim Fergosi did a great job managing the team. Darren Dalton ran the clubhouse in the field. And it was a great combination. Um, we had platoons of Incavilla and, and, and Milt Thompson. Uh, Wes Chamberlain was came along. Uh, Mariana Duncan. We had a we had a hole of shortstop, but Kevin Stocker came up in the middle of the season, filled that hole. Mickey at second base, and Darren was the leader. Kurt Schilling, Terry Mulholland, Tommy Green. Tommy Green had his greatest year that year. Uh, Schilling was an animal on the mound. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, in 1981, all the, the zip for the Phillies fans was taken out because of the strike. You know, uh, we, were the, we were the world champions, and I think we we're going to win again. Well, in 93, that team captured the hearts of Philadelphia. And then we had a strike again in 94. And again, the city was, got sapped of all their enthusiasm for, for the Phillies in baseball. It was, it was very difficult. And the team never gelled after that. A lot of injuries. They got older. Um, but it, it was a unique experience. We were the first team uh, that went from last place to first place. Uh, we battled the Blue Jays, who were the defending champions. Um, they had a game at, at, at Veterans Stadium where we're killing them in the sixth inning or something like that. And um, they let the pitcher bat. And it was always like saying they were waving the first white flag, but they came back to win a game. Uh, and that was the one that crushed us. But we had the lead in, in, in Toronto in game six. And then um, Joe Carter hit the home run to, to clinch it and end it for us. Our bullpen was out of gas at that point. Uh, we were not supposed to beat the Atlanta Braves, but we did. You know, we had a, this, this team was known as a wild bunch, hillbillies, you know, misfits, um, weirdos, but they could play baseball. And the city had really, they, they were blue collar workers and that's what the city loved. Um, they were tough. The 
they had beer bellies. <laughs> a lot of beer drinking, but maybe that was the way that, the way you won. So it was a very close knit team. After every game, they'd be in the clubhouse. They'd go to the trainers' room, all twenty five of them in there, and they'd review the game and talk about what mistakes were made and on their side and what they can do to win and how you should pitch a certain guy that we didn't do right and so forth. And it was a unique bunch, a very unique bunch. We'll be right back with more from Larry Shank in a moment. Just want to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, NGR Home Services, your energy savings MVP. So you can spend your money where you really want to at the ballpark. Hook, line, and splitter, a Jersey Shore Blue Claws podcast presented by NJR Home Services. Visit njrhomeservices.com for more. Now back to our special guest, Larry Shank. Darren Dalton, obviously means a lot to you is the, the first player that that you mentioned um looking back now what stood out most to you about his um his um, his amazing career he was tough he really was tough he had a lot of injuries overcame all of them uh he battled all the time um you know and then the 1960s no, wait, 1997 dave dombrowski was the general manager of the miami marlins and they were in the lead uh, in the division, they had a chance to go to the postseason, and he picked up Darren Dalton in a trade. And Darren was in Miami for three days. And then he held a clubhouse meeting and let him out, let him know. And he was the he was the he was the reason they won the, that year in the World Championship. He got a ring that year, and he was not there very long, but he was a great leader. He could pat a player on the back. He could grab the player by the throat and put him in the locker and put him in the corner. Um, and he had a lot of respect. He, he was just tough as nails, just absolutely tough. And unfortunately, he wound up with a brain tumor and died very early, much much too early. Harry Callis, you were there when he came to Philadelphia from Houston right. in 1971. Um you know, how did he so how did he win over the uh, the hearts of uh, of Phillies fans? Well, when we got him, it wasn't very popular because we, we replaced him. We replaced Bill Campbell with Harry Callis, who was an unknown from Houston. Uh, there's an interesting story there. Bill Giles, first person he wanted to hire was Al Michaels, who was with the Reds at the time. But Al passed on it. And then Bill brought in Harry from Houston because Bill was in the Astros when Harry broke in down there. Um, Harry Callis, after every game at the Veterans Stadium, he parked in the parking area near where I parked, and fans would be waiting for his autograph. He signed every autograph every night for everybody and would do things. People would call him to do a tape or recorded message for their cell phone and so forth. He did it. He did a lot of banquets speaking, and um, he was just... The, the combination of he and Richie Ashburn, are, I don't think you're going to see that anymore. It was just a, not, a unique a unique pair. Whitey with his homespun humor. Harry with his great voice, great calls. Uh, just brings you a lot of goosebumps when you think about it. You grew up a, you grew up a Phillies fan? Yep, huge Phillies fan. Yeah. So now you're, you're the PR guy and in charge of that. Steve Carlton comes in. What's it like for you, a young Phillies fan, watching, obviously, one of the, whatever, 10 best pitchers of all time? He was, he was unique. 
he had, we were fortunate to get him from the Cardinals. He had a, had a, a salary conflict with the Cardinals. He wanted 65,000. I think they wanted to pay him 60. So they traded him, which we were glad to do. His year in 72 was just, a 72 was just unreal. He dominated, won 15 games in a row, won the, won the first of four um, Cy Young Awards. He was so cooperative with the media, with the fans. And after a while, the fan, he started getting concerned about the media. He told me one time, why should I talk to them? Everything I say, they take out of context. context. So he adopted a policy, a very simple policy is policy. That was his answer. And that made my job easier because the media knew that that was his policy. And I think the media respected him because they'd be consistent about it. That was, that was it. No matter what, 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 the, what the approach was, policy is policy. And um, sometimes the athletes are hot and cold with the media and that, that creates issues that you have to work through. But he, he was consistent. He was dominating on the mound. Um, you know, today they don't, they get nervous when a pitcher goes to the batting order for the third time. Don't tell lefty that. Don't tell lefty <laughs> batting order a third time. You know, complete games, strikeouts, dominating. Uh, he had a he had a slider that was just lethal. You know, and he he, he, he was a very unique person. Um, the day he pitched, you didn't get around him in the clubhouse. You stayed away from him because he was so focused, and you didn't you didn't you didn't small talk or anything with him because. You know, you need to stay away from him. Um, there's, there's, you know, we have some pretty good pitchers in the club right now, Nola and Wheeler and, uh, and Eflin, um, but they got a long way to go to match a Steve Carlton. Oh, everybody in baseball has a long way to go to match a yeah. Steve Carlton. Um, Mike Schmidt, so he comes up in 1972, just a few games, and then he quickly establishes himself. 73, hit below 200, and then after that, led the league in homers. Uh, three straight years at over 500. Um, what did he mean to the Phillies and that whole era as the organization kind of uh, elevated itself and ultimately won their first title in 1980? Well, he and he and Carlton were the guys you were going to build around all the time. I mean, Luzinski was with us, then he, we traded him and Boa, I think 81 or 82 in there. Uh, Maddox was with us till seven till 83. But when you have a Carlton and a Schmidt on your club, you can build around them pretty easily. And Schmidt obviously is the greatest player we ever had. He wore our uniform for 18 years. That's the only uniform he wore. Nobody wore it that long. Um, All-stars, gold gloves, um, he, he did it all. Um, first ballot Hall of Famer as was Lefty. Um, and he had a tough time sometimes with the fans. He was kind of an introverted person. And he said some things on occasion that rubbed the fans wrong. But uh, in, the, in the end, they recognized what he was and how special it was to have him around for 18 years. And now he's, he comes in as he's part of the organization, spends some time with their sponsors and so forth. But he also is on TV on Sunday home games. So he's been around. He's doing well. Um, he was a he was a shortstop in, in, in college. Um, and um, we drafted him in the second round. And. Uh, the guy that Kansas City took before him, we were the 29th pick. They took him at 28th, Ken Brett. I mean, George Brett. 
So it was huh. amazing that two Hall of Fame baseman went right back to back. When the Phillies left the vet to go to Citizens Bank Park, obviously the vet had been a you know older venue by that point, and the Citizens Bank Park becomes this new you know baseball cathedral that certainly held up over the last you know almost twenty years now. But the vet had its own personal charm. What was, what was everybody's reaction leaving the vet, and obviously the conditions for everybody? I'm sure for you, for the players, for your staff, everybody some jumped up 20 fold from, from the vet, but the vet was a special place in itself. Yes, it was. We, we were there for 33 years. Uh, and uh, the Eagles, the Eagles were critical of the vet master turf and some of the conditions, but that, that was our home for 33 years. Um, generations. That's all they knew of the veteran stadium. Uh, it was we, we, the last year, which was 2003. We planned a whole season uh, events, the final innings, and we capped it off with a, a great uh, post-game show at the end of the last game where we had alumni on the field, creating one more memory and one more tear for the fans. And then the following March, it was imploded, which was an emotional experience too. But Citizens Bay, Veterans Stadium was a stadium. We wanted a ballpark. We didn't need 65,000 seats. We wanted something that was more cozy, closer to the fans could be closer to the field and we could play on natural grass again. So we, we had toured many of the ballparks that were being built in that era. Camden Yards was the first one. Bill Giles came back from Camden Yards one time. He said, we have to get a ballpark like that. That's what we need. And we finally get it done in 2004. Um, the Citizens Bank Park is just an awesome, awesome ballpark. You know, we're blessed in our minor leagues, too. Allentown has a night ballpark. Right? He's done a great job with the older ballpark. And, of course, you guys have a great ballpark down there. And Jersey Shore Blue Claws. Yeah. It's hard for me to get that to my mind. <laughs> I call them Lakewood. Oh, it, took, it took me, when we were uh, calling the games the first week, it, it took me until, like, the third or fourth game before I didn't have any errors with Lakewood. But, yeah. I, I can imagine that. I can imagine that, you know. Um, and a lot of a lot of our players came through Lakewood. And, uh and, and Reading and Clearwater. Clearwater, it's, you know, as we all know, the baseball, Major League Baseball took over the minor leagues and rearranged a lot of things. We're fortunate that our, three of our teams were in our area because we had planned that a long time ago to make it much more simple for our, our staff and everybody to, to look at all the players in the minor leagues instead of, we had four minor league teams in Portland, Maine, Portland, yeah. Oregon, uh, you know, San Diego before the Padres. And we were scattered all over the country, but uh, in back in I guess it was the early 2000s when we decided to set up the, the the trio we call it from Lakewood, Allentown, and Reading, and of course Clearwater is our base. It's always going to be our base because that's where the the Gulf Coast League starts and so forth. So it's, we have a good setup, I think. We have a good 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 situation for our players, and um, we're very fortunate. Phillies were one of the first organizations to really think that forwardly going back yep. 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. We were, Dave Montgomery gets credit for that. So, uh, you know, we, we, we were, we were bouncing all over the place. And, you know, if you wanted to move a player from double A AA to triple A, it took a while to get from somewhere. We were in Macon, Georgia one time. And um, now it takes 45 minutes. Yeah. 
Now it's much more simple that your, your roving instructors can go from Lehigh to Reading to Lakewood without a lot of trouble, a lot of save a lot of expenses on it. Um, so it's a great setup. We were fortunate when baseball changed everything that we didn't have massive changes as some organizations did. Uh, David Montgomery, so he comes into the organization as a ticket salesman. He ends right. up running, right. running the whole thing. And you were obviously well-established by that point. At what point did you become aware of him and you know, kind of view him as a guy who was going to be a, obviously a, you know, a legendary figure in Philly's history? He was a, I went to spring training in 71, I think it was. Just before I went, he came in there. He came into the organization in the sales office. And I thought he was an intern. You know, I didn't, there was no major announcement or anything. And now it's September, he's still there. <laughs> so, and then he, he went in, into the sales and he became Bill Giles' executive vice president when Bill bought the team in 81. And then he eventually replaced Bill as the president. Uh, he, he followed the mold of Bill. The Bill set the tone for this organization. We were a family front office. Uh, we worked hard, we had a lot of fun. He got the Phillies involved in the community. Um, he helped, he helped build the ballpark. It was the idea to get a ballpark. Well, we had the all-star game in 76 to help Philadelphia celebrate the bicentennial. Um, he was very instrumental in turning the Phillies around because we were at Connie Mac stadium. Greg, we had 11 full-time front office employees. In yeah, that's incredible. And, uh, and we went to veteran stadium and he, he was brought in to, make that transition for us because he had done that with the Astrodome in Houston built it when they built that and moved the team in there. And he was the best thing I think the Carpenter family ever did bringing him to Philadelphia. I'll tell you, I know you're telling the stories, but I'll tell you a quick one, which I had heard I wasn't at, with the Blue Claws at the time, but in 2001, the Blue Claws opened their new stadium. So the first game was on a Tuesday and a game got suspended by rain. So the next day they finished the first game and play the second game. And the second game, the Phillies had a bus or two busloads of staff members that came out to, you know, enjoy the game and help open the open the stadium. So the first they played, they finished the first game, and now they start the second game. And I guess the Phillies had, had a game at in Philly that started the, the, the next night. So some of the people were getting a little anxious and, and wanted to leave. And um, but David was in charge, of course. And the pitcher for the blue claws was throwing a no hitter. Like he, he apparently what, what was told him was like, they said, all right, he said, all right, we'll get ready to go. But he never liked to leave a game early ever. No, no, right. no. And, the, but they had been there for a while. They had a long ride back to Philly. Then everybody had to go home and then they have to be back early the next day. Well, they look up at the scoreboard and it's like the fourth or the fifth inning of game two, seven inning game. And the pitcher was throwing a no hitter. So he wouldn't let anybody leave. They stayed to the last out. The pitcher named Keith Buck, Keith Bucktrot finished off the no hitter. And then only then was everybody allowed to go home. Yeah, that's David. David always finishes everything. That's the way that's his personality was. Um, he was he was he was very seldom on time for things. We could go on airplanes, you know, commercial flights, and he'd be walking in the plane when the just before the door closes for the final time. He was he had a memory that you couldn't believe. He was so organized and so detailed. We'd have meetings and he'd tell you how to do something. You'd sit there and say, well, why didn't I think of that? You know, he was an amazing person. He knew the first name of every employee in the organization, even the trainer down at the Dominican Summer League staff. It was, it was incredible. 
He spent time going to all the minor league teams. He thought it was important that the minor league staff see him from time to time. So, oh, yeah, he would come to two, three, four games a year in, in Lakewood. Yeah. And uh, he wound up getting that cancer, and he didn't slow down. He was still driving and pushing and didn't quit. He was a unique person, really a unique person. Um, he was a great Phillies fan, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a kid. Robin Roberts had a game in 1953 where he gave up a home run to the first batter of the game against the Reds and then pitched and retired the next 27. And I knew David was a big Phillies fan. I said, David, tomorrow's the anniversary of Robin, Robbie's one hitter. Blah, 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 blah. I was at that game. He said, I was at the game. So and he was a great fan, great fan. The Phillies uh, built back up towards their 08 championship and then had a, had a great uh, few-year run. Ryan Howard, of course, played for the Blue Claws when he came through yep. in, um, in, in 2002. And then he had some just unbelievable seasons in the mid to late uh, 2000s. When, what do you remember about, about him when he came up? You were still, you know, in your PR role, and then he has the huge years rookie of the year in 05, and then he wins MVP a couple of years after he was playing for the Blue Claws. Well, he was the big piece, is what Charlie called him. He really was. I mean, Rollins, Utley, and Howard, you don't come up, that doesn't come along very often. And Ryan, you know, he was a fifth round draft pick. He didn't do well his sophomore year in college or junior year, I guess it was. And uh, I was talking to Ed Wade recently, and Ed said, you know, if we had the analytics uh, evaluation of free, um, amateur players, we would have never drafted Ryan Howard because he struggled. But the, the, the scout out there, a guy named Jerry Lafferty, wouldn't give up. He kept pestering the Phillies. You got to take this guy. You got to take this guy. He said, you know, analytics would look at the, the, the spreadsheets and video and they said he's not, not a fifth round pick. He said, well, we did it. Uh, and Credit goes to Jerry Lafferty for hanging into that. And of course, we had Jim Tomey at the time, too. So what do, what do you do? So we put Ryan in left field at AAA, but that didn't work. You know, he was not the, a, 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 that great an athlete. And um, it all ended, though, in 2011 when he tore his Achilles heel. I mean, that just was the end of it. And he, he, had, a, he had a rehab, I believe, at Lakewood one time. A few yeah. times. He had, uh, in, in 07. He was hurt, and he was coming back, and he rehabbed uh, in an 11.05 a.m. game in May. It was a school day. Yeah. And then that night, Roger Clemens pitched in Trenton. So we had a, a lot of the Philly media came over mm -hmm. because I believe the Phillies were home that night, so they could double up because we played at 11. So they came over, covered Ryan's game, went back to Philly, and then there were a ton more media that would just cover it from a New Jersey baseball standpoint where you had him and Roger Clemens, they could hit both because Trenton played at night um, on the same day. And then he came, Ryan came back again three years later in 2010 and we retired his number 29. And then he, he played in the game uh, long story, but there were, we were supposed to retire it on an off day. The off day got canceled because they had a game snowed out in Colorado. So he ends up getting hurt. He rehabbed, uh, we retired the number pregame. He played in the game. And uh, he was, he was great. But yeah, he's, I've, I've called a few of his games and worked, you know, he worked uh, a few games where he played and then he came back again in, in uh, 2012 to rehab. So yeah, he, he's made uh, he's made a lot of appearances since he played here. He's a good man. He's a good man. Um, they were all good men, Jimmy, Jason and Ryan. And again, 
it's going to be a long time before you see that kind of quality on the team, three players like that. I mean, that was a, I still don't understand how we didn't win in 2011 with that pitching staff. <laughs> I really, it's very hard to believe that we didn't win it. It was such a great team. I think it might have been our best team ever. But our best team in I think you're right. the 77 team we didn't win. So, uh, Charlie Manuel had a, is having a legendary baseball career from all over the place. Uh, he was what? He was like a special assistant before he became the, right. the manager. Mm-hmm. Yep. So was he embraced by the by the city right away? And obviously he became a World Series winning manager a few years later. No, absolutely not. He was not embraced. Uh, Charlie had a little trouble explaining himself after games. And, and there was criticism that he was American League manager, didn't know how to manage in the National League with double searches and stuff like that. And he was heavily criticized. And then we started winning. And now Charlie is treated like a rock star in Philadelphia. Everybody loves Charlie Manuel, and it's it's understandably so. He certainly deserves it. Um, he, he he was he was it was fun to be around Charlie. He, it was really fun to be around him. He had his own own ideas. He loved to talk hitting. He could talk hitting until you're blue in the face, you know. And uh, he still works for us, you know. He goes yep. to the higher leagues, goes to spring training. And when you go to the ballpark, there's a figure standing behind home plate, leaning on the batting cage. It's Charlie. That's his home. Favorite ballpark outside of Philly that that you got to travel to? Well, Dodger Stadium was always very unique. You know, I haven't been to love some of the new ones. Um, I was not impressed with Wrigley Field. Everybody loves Wrigley Field, but from a media standpoint and an amenity standpoint, it's didn't, it was not a very accommodating place for the media, the, the, the visiting media. Um, I was only in St. Lu- San Francisco once. That's a unique setting on the Bay. You know, I, I enjoyed St. Louis and Cincinnati because you could walk to the to the ballpark from the hotels. You didn't have to take the bus because they were in in down, downtown. They were, that was a unique experience too. Um, which I loved Jack Russell Stadium in Clearwater and and the new ballpark, which is now. Baker ballpark in Clearwater. Clearwater spring training was the best part of the whole job. There was no pressure for winning and losing. The media and the managers were getting along with each other. We played day games. You had your nights to yourselves. You were in Florida where it's nice and warm while it was cold and gray and cloudy up in Philadelphia. And, uh, and uh, I always wanted to play 162 games in spring training and then 10 in the 10 back North. <laughs> <laughs> how many games when you started how many games did they play in spring training now they play 50 we're we spring training we probably played maybe more in a, a dozen areas something like that you know we didn't yeah, have it's crazy beginning when i was in 64 so games were rained out because you didn't have a tarp we didn't sell tickets we gave tickets away there was a there was a professional softball team in clearwater called the clearwater bombers their players were better known than johnny callison or dick allen or any guys in the 64 team they were more popular, um, and uh, but after a while, we settled in there, and we and Clearwater became our home. Paul Owens, to his credit, was the one that came up with the idea and designed the Carpenter Complex, and um, then we moved from Jack Russell to the new bar, ballpark. We opened two ballparks in 2004. I don't think any team had ever done that. One in spring training, and then one back north in Philadelphia. Um, you know, I was I was there for the. Closing of three ballparks, opening of three ballparks. It was it had a great run that way. Um, 
I just, it, I, I, I traveled somewhat, you know, and I, go, I would go to the World Series and I'd think, gee, I wish we could win in Philadelphia because I was in St. Louis when the Cardinals won and I'm walking back to the hotel and the whole town's going nuts, you know, and they're cheering and hugging and drinking and all that. And I thought, Jesus, we need to experience this in Philadelphia. And we finally did it, you know, in, 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 in 80. Um, yeah. How did you special, you know? How did you get the nickname Baron? I was working at the News Journal in Wilmington, Delaware, and I was on the morning paper, which meant I worked from four in the afternoon to two o'clock in the morning. The sports editor, Al Cartwright, worked in the daytime. We had cubbies for, for mail, and he would put notes in there with assignments and critiques, criticism, and so forth. And he always addressed mine as Baron von Schenk because of a German name, Schenk, you know. And somehow it stuck. And when I got into baseball, everybody called me the Baron. And it's the way it is. That's my, I'm the Baron. Uh, last question. Any, uh, who's, a, we talked about so many people and we, obviously we didn't talk about so many other people, uh, but who is a guy that maybe we haven't touched on a manager that you had a great relationship with or uh, just somebody that you kind of stay in touch with that stands out over the, over the years? Well, I think the person that was, more special to me than anybody was there in Dalton. Um, he, the 63, 93 team was very difficult with media relations and fan relations. He understood all that. And he would, he would help those of us in PR if we needed a player to do something. And my wife answered his fan mail for him because he said it was just too much for him to keep up with. And he just treated her like, like a queen. Um, she later on wound up with some knee problems, was in a nursing home. He came to visit her. Uh, we saw him in spring training. We'd go to Florida in the wintertime and, and have dinner with him. He was just a special person, uh, very special person. Um, and uh, he, was the, he, was a, he was the closest one I think I, I was. Of the 64 team, I was close to a lot of those guys because I was the same age as them. Bobby Wine and I both, we both lived in Norristown. And, uh, so we spent time together. As a player, you know, when you're in the front office, you need to get along with the players, but you don't want to come too friendly with them because it's, you're still management and they're not and so forth. Um, you're going to wind up writing press releases where you traded the guy or released the guy. Yeah. You know? so I remember writing a press release that Ruben Amar Jr. was born, you know, back in 65, <laughs> I think it was. So uh, there's, there's a lot of people in baseball. Baseball people are unique, I think, and athletes in baseball are unique. I, Robin Roberts would tell me details about uh, a game he pitched in. Rick Wise and I talked last week. His no-hitters 50 years ago coming up June 23rd. He talked in detail about every pitch in that game. It's amazing how they remember all that information. I don't know what it's like around pro basketball players or pro football players if they have the same same capabilities, but uh, baseball players are unique that way. You still watch every game or most games? I watch every game. My mobility is not good anymore, Greg, so I can't get around too much. I haven't been to the ballpark in four years. I don't think I'm going anymore. Uh, I have a lazy boy chair and a TV. What more do I need? That's all you need. Well, Larry, I kept you like 20 minutes longer than I said, but I, I appreciate it. Uh, your time. This was great. Had a lot of fun. Um, enjoy the enjoy the baseball season. And if you do get you out do. to a ballpark, you're welcome to, to swing by okay. Jersey Shore anytime you want. I'd love to. Uh, thank you very much. And good luck to you guys. I'll be following you. 
That was Larry Shank, longtime Phillies PR man, the Baron. Uh, thank you so much to Larry for a few minutes. Uh, we kept him about 40 minutes, uh, but he was, he was fantastic, telling a lot of great stories and reminiscing about the Phillies over the last almost 60 years. Uh, so thanks to Larry uh, once again for joining us here on Hook, Line, and Splitter. Blue Claws will be back home on June 29th. The big part of that homestand, Red, White, and Blue Claws weekend. July 2nd, July 3rd, July 4th, postgame fireworks following every ball game. So that should be uh, that'll be really exciting. Uh, tickets at BlueClaws.com right now, and you're not going to want to miss it. Those are going to be the best fireworks shows that we have all year and some of the best fireworks that you'll see anywhere all over the Jersey Shore over Independence Weekend, July 2nd, 3rd, and 4th for Independence Weekend. Red, White, and Blue Claws, Friday, Saturday, Sunday at First Energy Park. So check that out. And then uh, actually back-to-back series for the Blue Claws because they'll play at home beginning on June 6th, June 6th through 11th against the Wilmington Blue Rocks. Uh, There'll be a doubleheader probably June 7th, which is a Wednesday, making up a game that was rained out when Wilmington was here last week. That homestand includes Military Appreciation Night on July the 8th. It includes Grateful Dead Night on July the 10th, which is a Saturday. Splintered Sunlight will be playing live in the in the sandbar beginning at 6.15. It includes Bark in the Park on July 11th as well. So a lot going on uh, over the next few weeks here at First Energy Park. It all starts on June 29th. Hudson Valley will be in town. And then Red, White, and Blue Claws weekend. What else do we have here on Hook, Line, and Splitter? Well, We'll, have, um, we'll talk to Adam Leverett, Blue Claws pitcher. We have uh, another interview coming up next week that we did with Billy Bean from Major League Baseball Pride Month. And then uh, we'll have some more stuff as well. We're going to do some Blue Claws uh, at 20 segments coming up soon as well. The big uh, July 3rd lights out game, which we've talked about on the air many times, but it's such a great story. So we'll hit that one up uh that story as well on an episode leading into independence week that was certainly a memorable one we're gonna uh have a few more things planned as well so hook line and splitter like rate review the whole thing thank you so much for joining us thanks to our sponsor njr home services your energy savings mvp so you can spend your money where you really want to at the ballpark njr home services.com i'm greg jambarisi have a wonderful day everybody thanks for listening hook line and splitter a Jersey Shore Blue Claws podcast.